This podcast is brought to you by ChasingRoos.com, the online store for international rugby league fans. You're listening to Chasing Kangaroos, the rugby league podcast for fans who are passionate about seeing the game played in more places. What is up, Kangaroo Chasers? And this week, we welcome back a friend of the pod, back to give us an update on all things International Rugby League. He's the International Rugby League Independent Chair, Troy Grant. How are you, mate? I'm terrific. Thank you, Michael, and all your listeners. Thanks for having me back on, and thanks for your ongoing support for International Rugby League. You know we love it, mate, and it's great to have you back. We spoke last August. It was episode 124, IRL on the future. For anyone that wants to go back and listen, it might be a good prequel to this discussion. Um, And back then, we spoke a lot about our disappointment with the World Cup being postponed. It seems like a long time ago now. Um, And, Troy, with half a year behind us, what's your feeling in hindsight? Yeah, look, we were faced with the reality of extraordinary circumstance that we hadn't had since 1917 with the Spanish flu and a global pandemic. So it was really uncharted territory for a lot of things. And the difference in the way that the pandemic at that time um, was managed from the northern to the southern hemisphere couldn't have been um, polar opposites. And the cautionary way it was done a very restricted way in the Southern Hemisphere compared to a sort of more freer um, set of arrangements. And that's shifted uh, over time as the pandemics uh, followed its path. So, look, I think ultimately I imagine it probably was the inevitable outcome given the very sizable difficulties in the logistics of getting everyone over there in such circumstances. There's been some benefits so far as we've had more time to bed in a lot of um, other things that uh, from a commercial point of view and I think John yep. Dutton and his team have done a remarkable job so it's given us a little bit extra time uh, there wasn't significant disruption uh, but then again you know we've, we've now got some international conflict which is um, impacting um, the just the cost of getting over there and different things that yep. you know, we're, we're making contingencies for and all that sort of stuff but there's just it just never stops, I guess, with the challenges that International Rugby League are going to face. But there's also plenty of lessons that we learn that will make us stronger for the future as well. What are some of those lessons that we've learned? Yeah, look, I think about just the the communication, I think, was something that was pretty absent. There just wasn't a free flow of communication between the IRL body, its own members, let alone its critical stakeholders being the players and the professional clubs who we rely on to provide the elite level of talent that draws in sponsors and commercial revenue and those things we rely on. Um, The passion, the participation, the drive from nations that don't have players in either the Super League or the NRL, I think has always been there and and they're the ones that, to a certain extent, um, need to be subsidised by um, the elite level competition just until they can grow or there's enough consistency in competition to draw and fund its own operations from a commercial point of view. So 
I think for the first time, the IRL's looking more holistically. We've actually got a strategic plan that's deliverable and makes sense rather than, you know, pie-in-the-sky stuff that we had before. Yep. Uh, I think we've had time to get our own governance arrangements in place, get our house in order financially. You know, we used to budget off an Excel spreadsheet, but now we've got a proper accounting system in place. <laughs> Good to hear. Um, yeah, we've got... Only a small team in the IRL. I don't think that's properly understood. So we've only got two full-time employees and I think there's four to five others who are contracted. And then we've got a hell of a lot of volunteers yep. on committees that do a lot of other works. So um, the independent directors, we're not, we don't take a, any remuneration for what we do because the game can't afford it at our level um, either. And so I think we do get a lot of good stuff done given our size but I just don't think that the role we play is understood properly I think a lot of people think we just think about Australia, New Zealand, England and, and the Tongans, the ones that make the news but we do a lot um, at essentially the grassroots level to actually get rugby league happening in nations that just don't play it um, you know, we've got to get better at that too, there's been um, some incidents over time where the expectation hasn't met the reality of what we can deliver by way of technical education support or, or we have to be clear in what our capacity is uh, we don't have a you know a, a big bucket of money or a big bucket of resources just to distribute worldwide um, to help nations out we'd love to be able to do that and you know, that's why I think what you do with your ball distribution that's why I'm just in awe of what you do <laughs> and so I'm such an admirer and I'm, and I'm gonna hopefully um, copy a little bit of it too to try and get some chairman um, funds to um, out of my own pocket to get nations and balls as well because the need's there, it's massive and the more nations we have playing, the better for the international game overall. But the reality is we have to get the calendar sorted and that's the big chestnut that we've got to really crack Yep. because that's where the money is generated from to reinvest into the international game. I'm glad you are. Well, thanks for mentioning the the balls. It's awesome to see you watching. And um, and and you're right. You know, we've sent at Chasing Roos, we've sent a uh, hundred balls out, or we're we're in the process of sending a hundred Steedham balls out to nations that need it. Um, Ten different nations, a hundred balls. And what I noticed was there's so many more that are calling for it. So even when we gave out our full complement, there's still every week or two I still get a, a message every now and then hey do you have any balls left is there any, what can we do to get some balls you know so it's really important and it's just so small fundamentals you know we talk about you mentioned that you know the IRL doesn't have much cash or much manpower either which you've mentioned and yep. and we know that you know the people that listen to this podcast understand that but what we also understand is there needs to be opportunities and and what, it can be opportunities as little as having a rugby league ball to actually play with and train with or opportunities yep. to represent your nation. And you mentioned the calendar, which, you, you know, you're, you're, every rugby league conversation that, that you have as an IRL chairman is going to involve a ca the calendar in some way. And, and, of course, I'm going to touch on that tonight. But it's, it's just good to have rugby league back on the calendar in the Southern Hemisphere, to be honest with you. It's been a couple of years. We've all been pumped about the rise of Tonga and the Pacific in particular but the last couple of years for for international rugby league fans here in Australia and, and New Zealand it's it's been pretty pretty shit to be honest with you and and we all know the reasons why but you know we still like we still joke you know the kangaroos haven't played in a couple of years and, and things like that but this year we've got international rugby league back we've got a little window 
where we'll have the um, we'll have a double header in Campbelltown, and we'll of course have New Zealand Tonga in Auckland. How good is it to see that back? Oh, look, it's it's vital to be honest with you. I think we'd be dead in the water if we couldn't get that up this year um, and just be completely 100% reliable on the World Cup. It's you just can't go into our number one major tournament without any activity in the south, southern hemisphere yeah. for that period of time. Yeah. Uh, obviously, the northern hemisphere have really put in, and we've had some matches up there, which has been a godsend. But uh, yeah, the, the appetite's there. It's just you just got to get so many moving pieces together. And it, to be honest, it gets really frustrating because you got to get everyone's vision and agendas and interests and investment all lined up as well. Yeah. And that, and they don't always complement each other. And it's not that people are doing the wrong thing by the National Rugby League. They're primarily doing the right thing or their primary responsibility is to either, you know, their competition, their organisation, their club, their fan base, their, their whatever. And it's just a busy space and there's so many competing interests. It's just a, it's a challenge, but, you know, it's one worth fighting for and, that, and that's what we're doing. Is there, a, like, a specific example you can give us, like, where there's a, a challenge that, you know, all best interests at heart, but there might be, you know, just two two parties looking in different directions, so to speak? Yeah, I, well, I can. I'll give you the perfect example. So when um, I got onto the national board, I, I reached out to um, the clubs and, and just... I already had a few relationships that I'd developed um, in my time in politics with a few clubs and a few individuals, whether yep. it be CEO or coaches or players, that sort of thing. But I started a proper communication with the CEOs and I just posed the fundamental question to them. What do we need to do to garner your support for International Rugby League? And, and they'd been hurt by a couple of examples where our end of the bargain um, cause them pain. So one that even Josh Papali speaks about himself was when he played for Samara in 17 World Cup, yep. that the camp wasn't professionally run and he you know, put on a heap of weight, wasn't looked after from a welfare point of view and returned back to the Raiders massively overweight and had a big impact on really bad start to 28 season. So that impacted on the Raiders and uh, you know, they've got a, a right to be dirty. Um, another example is uh, things about uh, Kieran Foran when he got busted playing for the Kiwis when he was at Canterbury. Yep. And he was out for an extended period of time. Well, that had salary cap ramifications and some queries over, you know, whose insurance paid for what and how did it all, that all work. So we just needed to get a better understanding of how that works and what the needs were. So, you know, I meet regularly with Clint Newton from the Players Association to understand what what is player welfare about in a camp? You know, what is the <clears throat> conditioning they need to be back? What are the standards that international camps need to have to make them parallel um, with the NRL clubs to make sure that they get their players, their assets back in as good a condition as they can after international clashes? So it's just about us holding our, our end up from a professional point of view. I had a long conversation with Troy Thompson, the performance manager for the Kangaroos on the same front. And then we talked to the clubs about uh, the Kieran Foran sort of example and, you know, the NRL about salary cap dispensation and things like that to try and find a, a middle road so everyone was compliant with the rules, but the club and the player and that were also not adversely or unfairly impacted on their club season. So just a couple of little examples, I guess, where unless you're talking, you don't understand, you know, why there's pushback, but 
once you understand it, then you can do something about it. And I think we've made big steps in that direction. We haven't been able to implement a lot of it, obviously, because yep. there hasn't been any action. But <laughs> I've, I've got <clears throat> confidence that the nations and their camps and the people they bring in for their support staff and all that sort of stuff are far better prepared for the World Cup coming up and future tournaments than they have been in the past. And and the clubs, you know, didn't want their players playing in Mickey Mouse competitions as they as they described it to me. They they wanted the international content to mean something, to be competitive, to have some proper rivalry, to have some proper meaning and and a, a better authenticity rather than being thrown together, you know, a couple of months out uh, without proper planning or advance notice. So the clubs could factor in when their players would be away so that they could manage workloads, manage their leave because they're in the NRL, for example, they've got enterprise bargaining agreements where they have to have certain amounts of periods of leave yeah, of course. to make sure that those leave um, commitments were honoured, that they didn't conflict with pre-season training regimes. And when they came back, obviously that fluctuates. If they bow out at the end of the season, that's a moving scale every year. Uh, and all those sorts of things, which is all just good business. And But those conversations weren't being had. And I think the club's CEOs were pretty happy um, that I'd start at that level of comms and then, you know, we got the actual World Cup talking to the IRL and that wasn't happening either. So that was a, a group charged with running our biggest tournament, our biggest revenue generator um, that only happens every four years, that we weren't aware of all the arrangements taking place and the and the gap between, you know, participation agreements not being signed and all that sort of stuff. So I made sure we were more engaged with the World Cup and, and Johnny Dutton and I meet on a fortnightly basis now and we're, you know, hand in glove. So it's just all that basic comms and then I'd meet with all our membership on a regular basis to bring them up to speed with what we're doing and just have an honest, authentic conversation and hear what their issues are and give an honest answer about what we can and can't do about it at this stage, but take it on board and continue to work for continuous improvement to service them as members i guess it's never going to be perfect right players will get injured but you know you can't you can't begrudge them of playing for their their nation at the highest level so there's got to be it's got to go both ways i suppose but there's no there's nothing like professionalism and it's important that we get to that stage it's really funny you know every everyone including myself you know I've, i've thought about you know what the best international calendar looks like what rugby league should look like at an international level and and dare I say, I may have you know written it down or made some notes. And there's plenty of people who listen to this who have done that. But there's so many factors we don't think about like that. And, and the communication levels, yeah, that's a big one, you know. And it's probably something that one of the benefits of the last couple of years is you know our reliance on things like uh, Teams and Zoom and all that sort of thing. So in a funny kind of way, we've all become a little bit closer when it comes to that yeah. sort of thing. Um, yeah, I think it's that's a good observation. Uh, I heard John's coming down to Australia as well, John Dutton, so to meet with all the the NRL clubs as well. Is that happening soon? Yeah, yeah, middle of June. Um, he flies into Brizzy, um, so I'll be there to uh, to pick him up and spend some time with him uh, with each of the clubs. Uh, again, it's because we've built that relationship, we can do that now and to brief you know the players who are likely to participate in the World Cup to answer any questions they have on logistics and make sure that information sharing is at the highest level and it's current and it's coming straight from the horse's mouth to give everyone you know, that more and more confident to participate and get really excited for the World Cup and buy into it and 
And as you know, we rely heavily on the heritage aspect of players' eligibility to, to be able to play for you know broader nations than just the one they live in or potentially were born in. Yep. Uh, and that's a, an asset I think we have for our game. It's not as honoured or or um, viewed the same in the Northern Hemisphere as it is in the Southern Hemisphere, uh, which I hope it will in the future because there's a lot of Scott, Welsh and Irish players playing for England that I'd rather playing for <laughs> Scotland, Ireland and Wales to raise that competitiveness. But they're going to play for England if Scotland, Wales and Ireland don't have any content and anything to play. Um, so we've got some work to do there as well. Um, so, yeah, there's so much to do. It's just incredible volume, but I think it's worth doing because the international product has got so much potential. And as passionate internationalists, we all get frustrated that the potential isn't realised, but, you know, we're doing yeah. our best. Well, it goes back to those opportunities, right? And I've been thinking a lot about this next point, and it's, you know, we've, we've mentioned we've got that standalone international weekend this year, and, and that that weekend will close next year because we won't have standalone origin um, down in the summer southern hemisphere for the for the foreseeable future. And at first, I was really angry about that because I I enjoy that week. I actually enjoy you know New Zealand and Tonga or or Samoa, Cook Islands, Fiji, PNG. I enjoy that more than Origin these days. It's just and I might be I'm probably a minority there. I might be a little bit weird, mate. But that's just how <laughs> I'm wired. But so I was angry to not have that next year, but it gets me thinking that perhaps, you know, it gives us an opportunity to, to have more games at the end of the year. And that, that, that plays into the whole, even on the other side of the world, it plays into more opportunities for Wales and Ireland and Scotland and France and all of those nations to play each other as well. Is that sort yeah. of where we're heading or what's, what's the plan? And this is probably more of a calendar question as well, but what does, what does next year look like with the International Week closed mid-year yeah no, look, that's exactly you, you've summed it up pretty well that that uh the agreement's been made that we won't have the mid-season test because there won't be a standalone weekend for origin and you know state of origin is the number one revenue stream for the national rugby league it's it's massive so it's it is important uh and there's two two points to it that um it allows people that are absolutely eligible who were born in Australia but have Pacific Island heritage to play that very, very high standard of competition, but then still at the end of the year go and play for their, their nation of heritage, uh, which only is only a good thing for the international game. Yep. It's bringing massive experience and, and skills and things to grow the capability and competitiveness of, of other nations. So that's a big plus. But what it does is it doesn't corrupt the professional league, for what of a better word. It, it gives it it's still corrupted somewhat by the state of origin, yeah. but it, it, it's less corrupted if there's a whole another big plethora of players who are playing um, the, the test matches at the same time. So state of origin can't sort of move because, you know, the pandemic showed that um, the revenue drop and having it at the end of the season, the natural segue would be premiership, state of origin, internationals. That would be the, of course. the, the nice sequencing. But... You know, the commerciality of it, the reality of it, is um, it needs to be in the time slot it's played because that's where the revenue, the broadcasters pay for it to be played because that's where it gets biggest bang for buck from a television product point of view. And, you know, that's that's just the reality of the commercial situation. So, But what we've um, gained out of that is a commitment for an additional week 
of international football, which then goes to more matches and more sinking of opportunities between the North and the Southern Hemispheres. So I think that then lends itself to a better pathway to actually develop a, a calendar and a calendar that shows a nation starting out or that maybe lower down in the world rankings a proper pathway for evolution and development and a better opportunity to access those heritage players. I don't know, just imagine if you had a situation like um, when JT and, and Fafita and that made that big, bold move, which really you know changed the international landscape. Imagine if the Trebojevic did that for Serbia. <laughs> There's certainly enough of them to, to make a big move like that now. So that, that yeah, would be but, crazy. Yeah, because cause you just imagine if that was part of it, what a massive boost that would be, you know. So if you're not going to get that in the middle of the year. That's just not going to happen. Um, but, you know, it's a potential that a couple of those um, boys might be playing for Serbia if those opportunities presented themselves in a properly constructed, you know, legible and... and um, a calendar with some integrity about it. I love that. Uh, what are some examples, like what, what sort of plan for next year then, or what are some examples of some matchups we could see in the back end of, of 2023? Yeah, so the the predicament, the, the first up look was we had uh, the World Cup of Nines yep. scheduled for uh, 2023. That's obviously four years from its first incarnation in 2019. So um, that's now been compromised to a degree because we haven't had the opportunity to qualify nations or have a proper qualification process for that World Cup. That's the, that's the first challenge, but we've also need to run a qualification process for World Cup 25, which will see a lot of nations outside of the quarter finalists need to qualify. So we need to have that opportunity. So we're just revisiting at the moment the commercial committee who are doing the calendar, what that looks like. Um, because the World Cup of Nines is only one incarnation into its history, yep. it's probably got a bit of flex while we have a real need to kick-start International Rugby League, particularly in the 13 side for men and women, and the uh, wheelchair keeps going from strength to strength. Yep. So um, what do we do to, to accommodate the qualifying processes that need to occur, but also put on uh, some tournament that is appealing to who we're chasing and that's commercial support and we did a an initiative recently uh asked the IRL um where people pose questions to myself and our secretary general yeah that was great I, I enjoyed and that the, yeah and the overwhelming feedback about the content that the international fans wanted was a bit of a return to a tri-nations four nations sort of concept mm. And it doesn't mean that you can't do that on a number of different tiers as well. Um, so that's all being sort of looked out at the moment. And obviously there's a, a massive yearning for a kangaroo and Kiwi tour regime and Alliance tour regime to be reinstated, reinstalled. So it's a matter of finding places for all that. And in only three years also hosting another World Cup <laughs> in France, which is a, an incredibly short window. World Cups are usually organised over about a seven-year period, um, but for reasons still uh, a mystery to myself, um, I've got no idea why we were nowhere near advanced for 25. Um, and and really, it was uh, with Wayne Bennett and Trent Robinson's help that we 
and the, the, the arrival of Luke Lacoste um, to the French 13, uh, his arrival that we're able to secure an epic outcome for uh, the World Cup to be in France in 25. So, yeah, we've got a lot to do in this first next four years, for what of a better term, in the first part of the new calendar. And that's probably just a regeneration of the international game, making sure there's a, a good qualification process in place and then how we then fit a nines back into the calendar along with any new tournaments or new content that's going to really draw our own commercial sponsorship interest to effectively fund uh, for t- further investment and into the future of the international game. Okay, there's plenty to unpack there, so I'm not even sure where to start, but I guess I'll start with the nines. So did I hear correctly, is, is 2023 nines, is that in jeopardy or is that potentially going to be postponed or, or, or something along those lines? It's a potential. It's just it's being worked on by our commercial committee as we speak. We've got another meeting on Thursday of this week and we've been meeting pretty regularly on that to, to look at all those options so um, that that's in the mix to trying to get the balance between, you know, how do we put that together and is it the Mickey Mouse thing where we're just basically inviting teams that haven't qualified that, or who, who participates, who doesn't? What do we do with the teams that don't play in all those sorts of factors? Yep. Um, and then again, as I said, how do we fit qualification in and around that as well for 25? Because that's uh, a two-year process. Um, so yeah, that's just a, everything's on the table. There's no decisions that have been made, but that's certainly, being honest with you, a, a potential. And I think with pretty just cause, uh, with pretty legitimate reason to, given the pandemic and the absence of international footy for so long, that we need a, a bit of a kickstart or a restart. And um, that's hopefully what the calendar will deliver. And it'll be a 12-year calendar. We probably won't announce the whole 12 years straight up, but yep. the work, the work's going in with that in mind. Yep. We'll probably, probably announce 23 content and then soon after, maybe after the World Cup, uh, announce the, the remaining three years of that first four years. And then um, there'll be a pathway for the remaining eight years of the calendar that'll follow after that. Looking forward to that. And look, you, you, you're right. There's four years to squeeze into three, essentially. So I can understand yeah. the nines needing to be thought about. And, and I like... I love the nines, right? I love the last nines World Cup. I was there. It was, a, it was an incredible couple of days. Um, but one of my criticisms was it was kind of thrown together. It, I won't say Mickey Mouse, you, but, you know, it's, we didn't see qualifications. We saw a number of nations picked for, for who knows why. And, and that's fine at the time, but some more thought going into that I think would be incredible. Um, you've also mm. spoken a little bit about France 25, and you, you gave credit to Luke Lacoste and to, to Bennett and to a few others, but... Um, I want to give credit to you as well because last time we spoke, you know, that was really your baby. That was your goal. France 25 was your goal. And since then, obviously, it's 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 been announced and we're going to get there. So I want to say big congratulations to you on that one. Um, I appreciate it, mate. But success has many fathers and failure is <laughs> an orphan, apparently. So of course. No, there's always a lot of people that, um, you know, do a lot of work for these things. And, and I'm just um, part of a team and proud to be able to lead a a team of very committed people so credit where credit you but uh, I appreciate the sentiment I love it mate well now and now that it is locked in I mean what needs to be done over the next three years and and in particular like around France like we want France to be strong at this World Cup or at least give them a platform to be strong after this World Cup what what can we do as a sport or what can International Rugby League do to to assist in that regard 
Well, well, the the first thing that it's organically doing is it's four World Cups and sixteen teams for each of them. Yeah. So it's men's, women's, youth, and wheelchair, and the the EOIs that we have from the regions. I think they're described as regions in France that have uh, expressed interest in being host for matches and tournaments and teams and all that sort of stuff has just blown our mind. So the interest is really high. So to your point of leaving a legacy, it's got to be a really good World Cup. And I think the product will speak for itself that hopefully that will then kickstart what we hope will be a professional competition in France. Ultimately, you know, it's got to be done properly. I've got confidence in the organising committee that we've got some people on our organising committee that have been involved in Roland Garros, the Tour de France. Yep. Um, who are experienced in major events. Uh, obviously, we've got the support of the French government. We launched it with the French Prime Minister. Um, but, you know, it is a lot. It's a big, big ask. It's a logistical nightmare um, to get that many people over there. It's, you know, we've learnt the cost and the, the challenges that you have there. So the, the on-the-ground logistics you learn from event to event. So we'll get some, a lot of lessons out of um, the World Cup this year for 25 as well. Uh, the two committees are working together. So World Cup 21 and World Cup 25 committees are working together. So oh, they're wow. not not repeating any error. They're learning off each other. So that's uh, positive. Uh, and there's been a better sinking of um, potential commercial opportunities. So the commercial opportunities don't just relate to the World Cup, but they may well be extended across the broader calendar as well. So that's some of the new thinking and new arrangements that are, being undertaken because each of the tournaments previously had been run in isolation. Yep. For what of a better example, without understanding, you know, potential commercial partnerships can stretch broader than just the one event. And so we're, we're examining all those things. So we're just bringing a little bit more strategy, business savvy, commerciality to the thinking rather than just doing the best we can with limited resources. We're trying to lean on, you know, some really experienced people. And, you know, the NRL have got strong professionals in the commercial space and their help's been invaluable. Uh, Andrew Abdo's commercial team has been really helpful. Obviously, the RFL bring a level of that as well. Um, so that, that's what we've got to do. We don't have the resources, as I said earlier, internally, so we have to rely on our members and our friends and, and goodwill to um, try and build us into a much more savvy international sporting federation than we have been for a while. And I guess you have to make sure or ensure that the next person in your seat has some resources, and and you you probably have a better chance to do that commercially if there if these tournaments are in sync, if there is a twelve year plan, rather than you know individual tournaments here and there, and hopefully every four years kind of thing. So it's it's hugely important, um, mate. I wanna I wanna touch on uh, of course since we've last spoke. Rugby League in America podcast is now part of the Chasing Kangaroos Media Network. I'm not sure if you know that. So we've got quite a few yeah. listeners over there as well. And you've touched on in the past, you know, your, your passion on rugby league in, in especially in North America and or in the South as well. Um, and you've mm -hmm. touched on 2029 potentially being in the States. And we've also spoken about, you know, some of the reforms that are happening over there. So our American-based listeners will want to hear about, you know, what has been some of the outcomes of the IRL's um, reform and, and, and review into what's been happening over in North America in the last, you know, 12 to 18 months. Yeah, so we, we've initiated a, a governance um, review over there to 
um, overcome the, the fundamental problem is it's a disconnected sport in America. There's a lot of great people pulling in 50 different directions. Yeah. Uh, and there's no synergy between grassroots through to, you know, community level, through to state-based competitions, through to a professional league and, and things like that. So there's people that are doing their best for the sport because they love it and they're passionate about it, but they're not doing it in unison. So we, we need to change that. We need to fix that. There needs to be proper pathways and connectivity for the sport. Uh, the, the structure of the our member body, the representative body um, for the IRL, uh, I think there's an admission that that probably isn't structured to accommodate that as well as it could. So that's all happening. That's a working process. It hasn't been um, the smoothest ride, to be honest with you. There's yeah. a lot of polarising opinions and passion that's in there and, and all that sort of stuff, but we've got to overcome that. And we're looking at the greater good here rather than, you know, you've got to get it right rather than try and find a fix that'll satisfy something tomorrow, but we need to find a fix that fixes it good and proper. Yep. So that's what we're working on. So it's probably taking longer than I would have liked, um, but it's important that we get it right as well. So to the, to the point that the incentive uh, for North America is that, you know, I get asked, why don't you talk to the government about holding a World Cup there or this event there in the US? But we can't sell them a product where we don't even have our own house in order in that country. Yep. It's the, it's the in-country framework and structure that you need to get right. It, it's boring stuff, but it's, it's the really important stuff um, that you have to get right before you can have a World Series, have a World Cup, have a, a major event there because... You're only setting yourself up to fail. Otherwise, you don't leave a legacy if there's nothing in place to to benefit from having the event there. It'll just come and go, and, and that's the last thing we want. So, I, I think um, you know a, a World Cup is you know a six-week tournament, and if there's not the infrastructure in the ground there in North America to support it, it's a big job sustaining the interest of a sport that not a ton of people know about. They they're interested, there's a bit of intrigue, they get excited about it, there's a bit of potential there, but how do you sustain that over a six-week period if you're being honest with yourself? I think that's a challenge that we need to be honest and have those conversations. So how would that even be structured? You know, you have to take it to a new market uh, each week, basically, or mm. how does that look in America? And then what's the cost associated with that? What's the logistics? How to... So it becomes really a big, big challenge. Um, is, is 29 too soon? Maybe, maybe not. Um, but we're, we're making those assessments and we're thinking about all those things. So, uh, yeah, ideally I'd love to see the tournament in North America in 29, but maybe it's better if it was the, the following incarnation and allows a bit more time to get the foundations right over there and have some other events in North America to whet the appetite and, and lead up into it as well. You know, drop the bird seed along the, the way is part of the strategy rather than going full hog for a World Cup in 29, maybe there's a different option. So they're all the things that we're, we're pondering at the commercial committee at the moment, and uh, hopefully we'll get the answers right. But from your point of view, if not North America in 29, where would you like to see you know, a World Cup after France? Uh, yeah, I, look, I think you know, the Pacific, I think, has a lot of merit. Have a, a Pacific World Cup... Um, where the, the likes of PNG and 
and Tonga and Samoa get to play a, a bigger role in in those sort of opportunities and would be due as well because that would be two back-to-back mm-hmm. World Cups in the Northern Hemisphere. Yep. So um, potentially looking at that and you could even, with the Pacific one, tie in Hawaii. Oh, it's wow. like I say, a bit of a bit of a grass seat sort of introduction there too. There's heaps of options, but uh, you know all those things have to stack up and make sense and actually pay for pay their way and and be logistically doable as well. So uh, nothing's on or off the table, but that's just my own personal view as what other potential may be. But you know, I'm ready to hear any ideas, and I know uh, your audience and our passionate internationalists are, are not shy in sending me their ideas, they and they're <laughs> more than welcome to do so. They certainly are, um, but that's great. That's cool. Um, you said I've got, I guess, one one final one, uh, and you said right at the beginning you were talking about um, some of the stories that we don't really hear about. You know, where we people think that the IRL focus on, you know, Australia, New Zealand, England, and maybe France or Tonga. You know, the the countries that you get get written about on the back page of the paper. But what what that sort of spiked my spiked my attention a little bit when you said that right at the beginning because I'm interested to hear. You know, what's maybe an example of, of some grassroots development that you've heard about that our listeners may not have heard about, and that's going to be tricky because they're well-versed in this sort of thing, but what's a story, an unknown story that needs to be told that you've come across in your time in the chair over the last 18 months or so? We have rugby league in India. <laughs> yeah. uh, we've got We've got a massive growth in new members, whether they be observers or affiliates or affiliates moving to... Um, observers moving to affiliate status and, and that sort of stuff. So we ha- we had some progress. The the roots are shooting in places that you maybe not automatically aware of. The Philippines, uh, Japan, starting to to uh, grow and shoot a little bit more. So there's all these opportunities out there, and in you know, some big G7 countries as well that have got you know an economy and a, a something to tap into if we can just get. Uh, the game more broadly known or accepted in those countries where it's a little foreign to them. And and I guess that's um, <clears throat> part of what I hopefully can bring to the role is my connectivity into the, the consul uh, core and the ambassador level uh, of those nations. We have really good representation here in Australia, in Sydney and Canberra, uh, and I've got good long-term relationships. That's how France got going through the consul general in Sydney. Um, that's how that all started in, in reality. So I think there's things we can do off the field to really harness that. And the High Commissioner in India is the former Premier of New South Wales, Barry O'Farrell, yep, yep. who's the former President of the West Tigers. And he's a mad, he was a North Sydney fan, a Bears fan originally before um, they lost their spot in the, in the competition. So uh, he's over there flying the flag and sends me updates on what's happening in India, which is really exciting. Imagine if we can get rugby league in India with the population base over there. Incredible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Rug, rugby league's... Um, did you, the rugby league... Sorry, the rugby union sevens at the last Olympics in Tokyo featured a Chinese women's team that performed really well. Why couldn't they transition to rugby league nines as a, a starting point? Imagine if we got rugby league happening in China. The population there. Um, these are all the opportunities that are there and the potential, but 
and they're real, um, but they've got to be enlivened. And the only way they're given growth is if they've got a good foundation and are properly fertilised and nurtured and, and there's a proper strategy and a proper legacy program behind it. And, and Wayne Pearce, who uh, is well-known to your listeners, one of our directors on the board, an ARL commissioner, this is one of his major passions and he speaks really articulately on it is it's all well and good to have the ideas but unless you have the framework around it and where's the participation strategy where's the follow-up legacy where's the this plan and that plan to support it all then you know it's all pie in the sky stuff and it's it's uh, meritorious but it's pipe dreams um so let's turn some of those dreams into reality by having those foundations built properly and and sort of making hay while the sun shines and the sun's about to shine and we're hoping to make good on it and yeah so India is probably the one example <laughs> that listeners may not be aware of and you know the, the reality is it's community level rugby league but what's wrong with that we've got to you know, start like, somewhere you got to start with it, rugby league started somewhere it all started somewhere <laughs> you know it was New South Wales rugby league started you know as we all know famously on the back of disenchanted rugby union players, but it was funded by true believers. Uh, you know, we had Trump, Trumper, we had Gilton. They, they put their own money, heart and soul into it. And, and that's what you're seeing at international level. We have individuals, you know, Benny Howard over in Vanuatu. There's one example, and I don't want to shut, uh, highlight him, but Robert Bergen's another one who does individually. And there's heaps of them out there. We've got it North Macedonia and Italy and there's a heap of countries out there that are supported the same way. It relies on the individual who put their own blood, sweat and tears and their own money into getting rugby league happening in in their um, country of heritage or their, how they're connected to that country. And, and that's how rugby league essentially started in New South Wales in 1908 as well. So, yeah, the genesis is there and we're not a big body that can just fund startups of rugby league, not at the moment, we'd like to be ultimately, but we do still rely on the individual and that passion for the game and the IRL board, the volunteers who are, are similarly doing, doing this because we've got a passion for the game. I think that's the best place to uh, to end the interview, Troy. Thanks, mate. That's uh, The foundations are important and we've, we've, we've seen a lot of ideas without, without the build-up and, and the thinking beyond the idea, so it's good to see that in place and it will take time but um, I think I said this to you last time but we have faith mate so great place to end end the episode I will say um, I'll have a quick chat to you about something after I stop recording but before that I'll just say when uh, when John Dutton comes down to Australia hopefully we can all catch up and, and have a chat as well and maybe hit hit record then as well so uh, Troy I'm sure I'm sure he'd love to do it I know he's a fan <laughs> of the program so. <laughs> thanks Troy thanks for chasing kangaroos with me once again mate you're welcome. Thanks for your time, Michael.